Welcome back to another episode of Digital Business Models Podcast produced by For Week MBA. In this episode, I interview Tim Higgins. He's a, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He actually covers companies like Apple and Tesla, and he's the author of a, an incredible book, which is called Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. This is a very interesting research into Tesla and the whole history of Tesla from the early days to the many near-death experiences that Tesla has actually lived throughout the years since it was founded in 2003 and actually how the company managed to survive, thrive and become one of the most valuable brands of the last century. We go through the whole story together with Tim. Let's go to it. Tim, thanks for taking the time and for joining this session. Well, thank you. It's an honor. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really my honor because uh, the, your book, it's uh, one of uh, the, the best uh, business books I read so far. And, uh, you know, I, I'm telling you, I, I read a lot of uh, business books and uh, it's, a, it's a great book because it's a very, uh, you know, well done research into the whole history of, uh, of Tesla. I mean, you can find many accounts about Elon Musk. I mean, it's one of the most uh, popular business people in the, in the world, but the whole story of Tesla, how you... Uh, you know, tell all the details and uh, evolution from the early days. Uh, it's uh, a really, I respect people that do like a well done research and this is an incredible research. So thanks. Well, I appreciate that. that. I appreciate it. when I started working uh, to write this book in 2018, I thought it was going to be about the collapse of Tesla because it looked pretty bleak. Um, but as the years went on and I continued to work on it, it really became clear that this was going to be one of the most remarkable corporate turnarounds of a generation uh, with the success of the Model 3 and Tesla becoming the world's most valuable automaker. So uh, a lot of drama in there uh, for the reader, which makes a good book. <laughs> yeah, it, it would, I would actually make uh, a good movie. I actually realized that in this series, in this podcast, I'm interviewing a lot of others, which books might actually make it into, into great movies or series, who knows. But um, yeah, so let's get uh, started from there, because uh, as you said, uh, the near-death experience that you're talking about, of course, is uh, one of the, the last near-death experiences of Tesla in 2018. And then it was one, as you said, one of the greatest turnaround. But Tesla is a company that uh, is around since many, many years. So can you tell us a bit uh, of the context of the very early days of, of Tesla, the, the main people around the project, and also a little bit of the context back then? Yeah, Tesla began as really a very unlikely um, idea, uh, a really kind of a wild startup in Silicon Valley. Um, the founding CEO was a man named Martin Eberhardt, and Martin was almost a serial entrepreneur in the, in the, the Silicon Valley of the day, uh, which was really much different than it is today, um, where you see these huge billion-dollar valuations. Back then, it was the, the ambitions were a little bit smaller, but uh, the 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 way to change the world perhaps was not. I mean, he uh, wanted to to bring out an electric car. He was a guy who was uh, in middle age, uh, going through a divorce, and the uh, best anecdote for uh, a divorce uh, is to get a sports car. Uh, but he was concerned about the environment. He was concerned about global warming. And he thought, 
that an electric car would really be the, the way to go. And as he was looking for an electric car that was cool, there really wasn't anything out there. There wasn't a, a, a sexy sports car. He wanted a, something like a Porsche, but electric, and it just wasn't really available. And that got him thinking that maybe there was a room for that um, as the world, uh, the early signs of potential electrification of the automobile were out there. You think about the Toyota Prius, which was a hybrid, uh, people were concerned about um, these kinds of things, and so he thought maybe there there was there was room there to create um, a electric sports car company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, as you point out in the in the in the book, actually he was not. Uh, uh, I mean, even though we are in two thousand three, many people might not know that actually um, other entrepreneurs were trying to build already electric cars. So uh, there, there was already a history behind it. And actually, there is a detail in the book, uh, which you mentioned, which is about the fact that even when uh, you know, gas-powered cars won against electric cars at the end of the 1800, the beginning of the 1900, uh, th- there was still a battle going on, right? I mean, um, like th- this idea of uh, producing an electric car was something that was uh, in, in, the, uh, in the air. I mean, was something that... Right. Yeah. yeah, it was not a new idea. The electrification of automobile was not a new idea, but the challenge has, going back to 100 years, the challenge really kind of uh, lay with the battery technology. Mm-hmm. And we saw General Motors uh, try to come out with a mainstream or a more mainstream electric vehicle ahead of Tesla called the EV1. But the challenge that companies were having uh, with batteries was uh, there was a trade-off, whether it was cost or range. and and this was one of the really the big stumbling blocks. And one of the, the common things you saw from the established automakers as they thought about zero emission vehicles was uh, they were looking really kind of for the perfect technology that, um, that they could introduce. Whereas one of the insights that Martin, Eberhat, or Martin Eberhardt had early on, along with one of the key hires, uh, J.B. Straubel, um, was the use of technology that was really already proven and that is lithium ion battery uh, batteries those are the the cells you have um, in your laptops at the time they were becoming popular because of the video cameras uh, and their kind of thought was if they could take enough of those they were fat finger size cells and string them together and kind of manage them with software uh, they could perhaps create enough power, enough juice, if you will, to power an automobile. And Martin's kind of insight was that, you know, if they were using, they were the calculation at the time was they were going to need about 6,000 of these cells in a car, that if they were buying 6,000 cells per car and they were going to make thousands of cars, that they would immediately become one of the world's uh, biggest buyers of lithium ion cells. And then in theory, that would give them scale that they could then uh, get better pricing. And then that could help bring the, the price down to make it more affordable and, and more doable in the car. And so that was the bet. And that was really the, the big insight that they brought. Um, the challenge, however, was lithium ion cells um, can be very volatile. And as they were developing the early car, the early Roadster, they it became to the realization that they had a, they had a challenge here. They had a real problem that uh, a percentage, a very small percentage of, of cells being made are going to be defective and, and essentially become, they're going to ignite on fire. You're not even going to know who, which cell it is. And if they were packing 
you know, thousands of these cells together, then the likelihood of a car uh, catching fire was actually not as remote as you might think. And that was, that was going to be bad. That was a really kind of a existential moment for the early company. And that is really, they, they, they set out to figure out how to stop that. And that's really the big technological innovation of Tesla was figuring out how to manage the battery pack through a combination of mechanical engineering and software to prevent uh, horrific fires um, from defective cells. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the first years uh, really was, uh, uh, the, the main challenge was really prototyping a, a vehicle, an electric vehicle, which would work. And uh, I guess, as you said, this was uh, like a huge uh, technological challenge. But um, how did uh, uh, Elon Musk get uh, involved? Because uh, for a bit of context to the audience, uh, we are, as, as we said, we are in 2003. Elon Musk was already, I think, about a couple of years into SpaceX. Uh, he had sold, uh, you know, uh, PayPal. Uh, so uh, he was already involved with another very challenging company. So how did he get involved into the venture and what happened next? Yeah, so Martin Eberhardt had founded Tesla on the idea, Tesla Motors, under the idea that he was going to create an electric sports car, an electric sports car called the, the Roadster. And he had a co-founder and a couple co-founders, and they had an office in the Valley, but really that's about all they had. Um, they had a business plan, and uh, they were spending their time uh, looking for funding. They had a prototype Uh, that they had worked with uh, kind of a, a shop down in the LA area that had used some lithium ion cells in a kit car. So they kind of demonstrated the idea, um, but they needed money. And the problem with the idea of a car company was that the Valley at the time, the traditional kind of Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists, investors were not geared towards the idea of taking, uh, you know, these kinds of gambles. They were really geared towards uh, investing in, in software, in part because uh, you could see the returns faster, um, which they needed to do for their investors. And so uh, they're really kind of getting laughed out of the valley. Um, and they, they came up with the idea that there was this guy who was clearly had an appetite for huge unconventional uh, investments. And that was Elon Musk. He made his fortune. He made his second fortune, his real fortune uh, through PayPal. And now, as you said, he had kind of, he'd left the Valley and he was in the, the LA area working on his rocket company with the idea of making space travel more affordable of going to Mars of this kind of really hairy, big, audacious idea. And um, that's kind of how he was getting some early attention. And so Martin Eberhardt went down to pitch Elon Musk on, hey, do you want to invest in Tesla? And Elon did. It, little did you know, Martin had know the kind of the backstory of Elon's interest in electric cars. Uh, Elon had, had been interested in the idea of an electric car uh, for a long time. He had uh, pursued uh, the idea of converting a sports car into electric uh, with uh, you know some other people. He in fact had already um, had a meeting with a, a promising young engineer out of the valley named J.B. Straubel, who would later get hired by Tesla. And J.B. had a very similar idea around that battery technology that we discussed on lithium-ion cells. And so uh, Elon was was kind of primed, if you will, for this pitch. 
And he came in as the largest investor and became the chairman. And that's really when the company gets going uh, with that money. Then it's a race to hire people. Uh, it's a race to figure out if they can find somebody to build the car. It's a race to figure out if they can actually do what they think they can do. Yeah. And you said, uh, you know, the, you pointed out a few uh, key points of the, the early days and now Musk got involved. As we see, the history gets very interesting. And uh, you mentioned really some of the key people like Straubel, who would really play a key role for, for years to come in within, within Tesla, probably one of the few key people that Musk could trust, I guess, within, uh, within Tesla. Uh, but uh, the, what, what was uh, wrong about um, the, the, the initial plan, the uh, initial business plan? that uh, they had envisioned? What was uh, some, of, uh, some of the major drawbacks that turned out to be a completely wrong assumptions in, in, in this plan? Yeah, well, none of these people were experienced car guys, if you will. Uh, they didn't have experience in the, the art of bashing metal. And, um, you know, a lot of startups don't have experience. And that's sometimes why they um, are successful is because they're looking at the world, looking at problems in a different way than an established uh, players. And so that the, the company was founded, uh, you know, Martin and his team had done research uh, on what they thought and, and built it on basic assumptions and these sorts of things. Well, a lot of the assumptions just turned out to be um, too optimistic. Um, and, and a lot of the issue was around just the cost. Uh, the cost of everything was just more than they anticipated. Uh, the rate of the, the rate of the ability to do things was, was taking longer, which then of course makes it more costly. And then the reality is um, designing, developing, and building a car is incredibly complex. And at a certain point, uh, it just became the, the project became more complex than Martin Eberhardt was accustomed to dealing with. It, the, it, Tesla had just become too big. And uh, the, the challenge of, of, of putting that car, the Roadster, into production uh, nearly did the company in. Um, it, it was just, it was monumental. Um, you might have, they had problems with suppliers, they had problems with capabilities, they had problems um, with just the way that they were uh, financing the company. And so all those things kind of got away from them and really put them in a bad position um, uh, financially. Uh, at this point in, in 2007, uh, 2008, um, when then the world uh, changed, uh, as you recall, the Great Recession and liquidity around the world locked up and uh, Tesla was having a hard time accessing the cash it needed to stay alive. Uh, and at the end of 2008, the company was uh, very close to bankruptcy. Um, and it's one of those kind of monumental periods where Elon Musk at this point assumes control of the company, he becomes the CEO, and he puts basically every penny he has left into keeping the company afloat um, in order to kind of make it to the next day to, to keep fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, we can trace the first uh, uh, near-death experience of Tesla between like 2006, 2008, right? I mean, uh, there has been many uh, near-death experiences throughout right, the right. years. But, yeah, the, um, the, the, yeah. the near-death experiences tend to come uh, for Tesla and for all um, startup automakers when you're in this very delicate period of 
ramping up production and sales actually hitting where the money is coming in from the sale of the car. This is very, you know, capital intensive period, and it's very easy to make a mistake and kind of the planning of that, uh, any of those, the periods of the, the production or the de uh, delivery. And this is just a really, really hard, hard thing. I mean, it's ramping up a new car is hard for the most established car makers, uh, let alone for a company that doesn't have that experience or, or industrial knowledge. And so in hindsight, it's not surprising that it nearly did them in. What's actually surprising is that they were able to survive and they were able to survive uh, in part because of Elon Musk's ability to sell the company. Um, the sale of the Roadster, which was their first electric car, was really uh, basically a $100,000 two-seat sports car, uh, used uh, a lot of the parts from uh, a sports car made from Lotus. Uh, the guts of it, the internals were the electric vehicle. Um, and it, it hit a core, it hit really uh, very popular with kind of early adopters, um, techies, people in California who are worried about the kind of the environment. And then one of the, the underlying things was it was set, it was a cool car. Uh, it, it had performance. The electric car was in a lot of ways perfect for that sports car market because the zero to 60 uh, speed right off the line um, which uh, we, we call the, the torque, you just feel it instantly. It's, it's a wild ride. Um, and that's, that's really appealing um, to kind of car, car buffs, if you will. And so they had sold a lot of these vehicles, pre-sold them um, to these people who were very excited. And so that was really important. But what was really important for uh, Elon Musk brought to the table was he was able to then sell the vision of what Tesla was wanting to accomplish in, in, in kind of a multi-year, uh, the future of the car. And that really became very important in the 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012 period as the company is uh, essentially trying to get the hundreds of millions and eventually billions of dollars it's going to need to go from being a niche sports car company doing 2000 cars over the course of a few years to uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of cars. And what the key thing was always the need for cash uh, and new investor cash to keep the lights on, to keep that, that effort uh, of development going. And Elon Musk turned out to be very good at selling that vision to a lot of investors, even when the company was struggling to stay afloat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, there is, um... Actually, a uh, recurring point in the history of uh, Elon Musk, also looking back at uh, the, the history of uh, PayPal, and uh, there is a whole episode on, on the series about that, where he, he doesn't want to be the CEO of the company, but he ends up in the position of becoming the CEO. And uh, the same happens to Tesla when eventually Elon Musk in 2008 uh, appoints uh, himself as, a, as a, the, the CEO of the company. I mean, how can that be possible? Is there a reason why uh, he ends up in this position and also how does the relationship with uh, with uh, Eberhard, uh, the, the, the initial founder, uh, ends up? Yeah, it doesn't end up well between Martin and, and Elon. It started off, it started off seemingly well. Um, I've read the emails between the two. They, they, they seem to have some common bond over the idea of product development and the idea of what consumers were going to want and similar ambitions. Um, but ultimately, when you work for Elon, it's, it's Elon you're working for. And 
um, and he's very demanding and he, um, you know, part of his success is not taking no for an answer. So part of his success is not uh, kind of resting, uh, you know, you know, with the easy way of doing something. And so you, you kind of see a pattern over time of him struggling to um, trust the, the executives that he hires to do jobs, um, not giving them a lot of rope to, to figure things out and kind of micromanaging them at, at very key times for the good and the bad. Um, you know, even to this day, he talks about how he doesn't want to be the CEO, how he doesn't like it, uh, it, it whatnot, but make mo no mistake, I and mean, he still wants to be the boss. Uh, he might not want to deal with the, the boring parts of, of running the company, but he wants to have the ability to kind of put in place his vision, his broader vision, and not, you know, get tied up with the kind of the bureaucracies that you see at traditional uh, big corporations that have uh, you know, concerns that, you know, are very just understandable uh, if you're a publicly traded company, right? He wants, he's thinking bigger. Um, and that's, and, and that's some of the challenges you see over the years. And so it's, uh, you know, when you talk about how his relationship with Martin ended up, it didn't end up well. It, 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 from Elon's perspective, he would talk about how he felt like Martin wasn't keeping him in the loop about what was going on at the company. Martin would argue Martin has argued in the past that that wasn't the case. And you look at the company records and it was very clear, uh, you know, the company knew it was, the board knew that it was struggling, um, you know, but ultimately it oftentimes comes down to um, kind of Elon's risk tolerance as, as kind of this entrepreneur, uh, somebody who did not come from a traditional corporate background, he has a risk tolerance that's unlike anyone out there. Uh, willing to time and time again bet everything on his uh, kind of his his vision, um, mm -hmm. the probability he looks at the probabilities and he's he's willing to go because he thinks that there's a chance of success, and that oftentimes takes the company to the near brink, and he's able to figure out kind of a way at the last minute to kind of survive, and you know when you bet big you win big, and so. Um, you know, he, they could have lost big, but it oftentimes he's been lucky or, you know, determined enough to kind of win big. And then he, you know, will then again, double down. And so you've seen this kind of, you know, huge bets after huge bets from the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess there was also a huge uh, divergence in, ter in terms of uh, vision, because I mean, as you explain in the book, I mean, the, uh, Elon Musk had this vision tra of translating Tesla into like a new GM when uh, many other people didn't think in, in, in this way, investors, yeah. also the, the top management, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. There was, you know, there's, so the company is struggling to stay afloat early on. And at this point, Martin has been kind of pushed to the side. Um, uh, so his vision is not really part of the conversation, but Elon and Tesla at this point have taken on other investors that have smaller stakes, but still pretty big stakes. And, you know, there's a natural conversation that occurs. What's Tesla going to become? Is Tesla 
going to become, is it going to pivot into becoming a supplier to car companies? They've proven that they can do these battery packs. This is really where their value is at that point in time. And, and they were seeing early signs that car companies um, were willing to, you know, at least expressing a willingness to buy their battery packs and that could keep, they could start keeping the lights on, rev generating revenue. And there was this excitement around that, but Elon was concerned about who they were going to work with. You know, he had this insight that, you know, if there was a problem in a, let's say a General Motors car because of a, a Tesla battery pack, you know, that GM was going to blame Tesla. It wasn't going to be, you know, these things were going to be out of Tesla's hands, perhaps. And, you know, it might not have been their fault. And so he was very concerned about that. Hmm. And, you know, that was part of controlling his vision is, 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 is part of the success of Tesla. He was, he's been able to do that. Uh, when others have wanted to go other ways, um, you know, but he's also very pragmatic. So he gets, he keeps control of the company. They get into 2009. He set this vision for the next car, which is the Model S, uh, a car that's supposed to compete against the best of the best out there, a luxury sedan, um, all these things. But he's also pragmatic and cuts some deals that really help the company. Um, he cuts a deal with the, the parent company of Mercedes, uh, Daimler. Mm -hmm. to provide battery packs uh, uh, to their uh, small car. Uh, he does a deal um, with Toyota, which is really important um, for the, keeping the company afloat. And that it gets them a factory, a car factory uh, in California outside of the San Francisco area um, that Toyota was basically getting rid of. Um, and it also uh, got them a deal to help uh, build uh, an electric version of the RAV4 um, as Toyota was kind of experimenting with its electric car program. So those were really key uh, deals in, in the early days of Tesla because it was generating revenue. It was giving Tesla experience working with traditional automakers to learn um, kind of how to control for quality and how to meet deadlines and these sorts of things and getting money in the, in the door as they were marching towards the Model S, which was really going to be the vehicle that would define um, Tesla and sell it to a larger audience. If the Roadster was kind of the proof of concept, the Model S was going to be uh, kind of an exclamation to the world that um, Tesla could make the best car uh, in the world that just happened to be electric. And, um, and that was the challenge. And that's really what Elon's bet was, was that if they could do that, that they could show that there would be huge demand um, for electric cars, and then they could really go on to the next idea, which would be a mainstream electric vehicle, uh, which we now know is the Model 3, um, that this would be the way that they become more of the general motors uh, of the electric car world rather than, uh, let's say, the Porsche of uh, electric cars. Yeah, and uh, you know there, there are a few things that came to mind as you were recalling the, the whole story. And of course, um, I guess there are uh, three... Um, you know things that uh, we can highlight uh, and for a bit of uh, context to the to the audience as we said uh, the initial uh, business plan of tesla uh, was brilliant in terms of targeting the market because again the tesla roadster uh, would actually prove to be a successful launch and especially a successful showcase of uh, of uh, showing that uh, you could build a very cool electric vehicle even though very expensive 
um, and of course, uh, not ready yet for, for a scaled up uh, production, but yet you would build a very cool vehicle. But of course, the, the uh, initial idea assumptions of uh, Eberhard uh, uh, were wrong in terms of execution, where uh, he thought he could build it uh, by outsourcing most of, uh, of uh, the pieces uh, to, mm -hmm. to others. Instead, it turned out to be a wrong assumption. And of course, uh, another point was about vision, as we said, where there was diver a divergence where uh, Elon Musk wanted to keep Tesla on track of becoming a GM. And uh, one thing that also came up by covering up uh, in this podcast series, the history of uh, PayPal and the history of, uh, of um, uh, SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk uh, has those grandest visions, but he also uh, is very good at execution where he's able to uh, keep his whole team on track, even though he's on top of many things and he's a micromanager, uh, he's able to uh, keep his team on uh, on track of this vision, so he does it uh, with a, with a very good execution strategy. Indeed, they show that uh, when uh, also in 2006 uh, he built the the, the secret uh, Tesla master plan, which was really three points that highlighted uh, the the execution strategy for the next uh, decade of uh, of uh, the the company. And, uh, uh, you know, another, another point is uh, as Tesla uh, moved forward, uh, we go toward, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, it passed the first near-death experience as we go through the 2008 crisis. And the company decides to go public, something that Musk doesn't necessarily love, as we'll see. Um, the, the reason, uh, you know, for keeping, for instance, uh, SpaceX uh, private is because uh, he understood from all the ups and downs of Tesla in the short term as a public company uh, to keep uh, SpaceX uh, as a private company. So it was a lesson for him. But he also became his own uh, PR, uh, right? Because uh, uh, there is uh, something that uh, it's... Uh, you know, easy to forget, but uh, uh, before 2008, uh, you know, uh, there was no, I guess, Twitter. I mean, uh, he started to tweet really, uh, I think, in 2009. So as he go through the, the, the IPO, he starts to become really his own media man because before that, he had to connect with, the, with the, a journalist to actually get coverage. Now he can do it uh, without any intermediary. He can start doing that uh, through... Twitter, and that changes the whole game, right? I mean, um, the, 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 it was not, I guess, easy for people around him to control his behavior, uh, for instance, through the IPO in 2009, and uh, at the same time, uh, though he was a very powerful strategy to have Musk become uh, his own PR, right? Definitely has, uh, you know, he understands the media, he understands, you know, the, the power of communication uh, in these sorts of things. And so, you know, when you go through an IPO, there's a lot of rules and, and you know, there's a lot of lawyers and a lot of bankers, and that's really not really kind of the thing he enjoys. And so, uh, you know, he knows what he's selling, he knows how to sell, mm -hmm. which is a funny thing, because, you know, he doesn't, he's very dismissive of the idea of traditional sales uh, methods and these sorts of things, but he is the ultimate salesman and that he knows how to communicate what Tesla is and why people should buy into it, whether the cars or the investment. And so, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, early days during the IPO, there was clearly signs that there was going to be t tension of, of running a publicly traded company, which they needed to do because that at that point in kind of in time, that's the way you raise the money that they were going to need the you know recent years we've seen uh you know from we work to uh uber the ability to raise uh billions in the private market but at the time getting the hundreds of millions that they needed really was a struggle and then the ipo market was a way to do it so there was that but also 
being publicly traded means uh, that Elon was going to face certain rules and restrictions um, in the way that he could do things. And uh, one of the those key things is, you know, if you're the CEO of a publicly traded company, you kind of, you have to be honest and, and up uh, and kind of straightforward, if you will, about the public comments you're making about the company and the material aspects of, of what's going on so investors can decide if they want to invest or not and, and have the best information. And, you know, there's there's been some tension um, between some of the comments that Elon makes publicly about the company and, and um, you know, what's going on with the actual company. And that's and that would really come to a head um, years later as the company was in trouble again. So you're, you're right, you're, you're the early, early seeds were being planted there when he's first getting on Twitter. Hmm. And uh, going forward, uh, a very powerful strategy that uh, Tesla picked up in the early days, it was a decision that they made in the early days, was to go direct, right? But uh, this wasn't uh, something... Uh, to give for granted, in the, especially in the in the auto industry where no one, I guess, had done it before. Um, how did they do it? I mean, what was the strategy? Who did they borrow from? Yeah. So in the U.S., cars for generations are sold through third parties, um, their franchise dealers. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the beginning, it oftentimes would be kind of generational families that would own groups or you know the local car dealership, and then that eventually became. Uh, more like these large groups, in some cases, even publicly traded companies that have massive amounts of brands under, under that, that they take care of. Um, you know, and there's a lot of criticism over the years about the way you buy cars in the U.S. It can be cumbersome. It can be um, painful. Um, it's oftentimes, uh, you know, equated as going to the dentist. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the idea of making it a better experience has been out there, but there are a lot of rules and regulations around the U.S. that kind of lock in that power of the car dealer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that Tesla had going for it is when they started out, um, they didn't have a uh, hundred years of history and a hundred, you know, a hundred years of um, contracts with dealers around the country in the U.S. They had a green sheet. They had green sheet the ability to to start anew, and they, and they so they started kind of realizing where they could do direct. Kind of the idea of like what how Apple was selling. Uh, you know, you go to an Apple store. You know, they were at the time Apple was in these high end malls, and you know, early on um, for Apple when they were going into the stores, the brand wasn't really known. I mean, the, you knew of Apple, but you didn't, maybe you didn't know what an Apple computer was, or maybe you didn't know what an iPod was, or you didn't know what an iPhone was. And the Apple store was, you know, some of it was really about education. And a lot of it was about getting hands-on experience with the brand and letting that experience sell the product. And that's really kind of what Tesla took inspiration from. They wanted to start creating um, facilities where people could go learn about electric cars because uh, you know, this was something different. Um, it's one thing to buy an iPhone that's a little different. It's another thing to buy an electric car that's, you know, unproven technology that's, in the case of the Model S, close to $100,000. But the idea was if they were going to become more mainstream, they were going to have to have these stores around to sell the, sell the car. Uh, you know, they had debated going direct just online. That's always something Elon has talked about. Um, but you get back to that kind of early days of the electric car and there was just really a belief that 
the, the, the customer was going to need a little handholding to learn about the electric car. How do you charge it? How do you maintain it? These sorts of things. Uh, the test drive really became key to selling these vehicles and that uh, if you get somebody behind the wheel and they could experience that torque, if they could experience the quiet ride, if they could just experience an electric car, um, that that was kind of the point in time, the emotional connection could come and that's really where the sale could be kind of completed. Um, so they were looking for ways uh, to get people to think about electric cars and try electric cars when they weren't thinking about buying a car because really in the US, uh, car buyers tend to be pretty loyal to the brand they're already in. It's easy to go back to the Chevy dealer or the Ford dealer and just get the newest whatever. And those, you know, so if you're looking for an electric car, you're, you're not really looking for electric, you're just looking to get your new car. Uh, and so they needed to plant this idea of the electric car in people's heads when they weren't thinking about buying a car so that then when they were that this maybe this was an option opportunity for them that sort of thing so that was kind of the idea behind um, the, their stores and they felt like they needed to control that by owning it they were there was Elon was concerned that a traditional car dealer if they started franchising would not have the same kind of motivations to direct people into electric cars um, because they would be more concerned about the, the, the profits that they were making from selling traditional cars, which tend to have more, you know, the theory is that you know, the traditional cars, they have more parts and so they need more maintenance and, and these sorts of things. And that's where car, ma uh, car dealers make a lot of their monies and the maintenance and the warranty work. Um, down the road. So you know, there's a lot of tensions there. And this was, but one of the big insights uh, that Tesla was doing was trying to sell directly to customers. Um, they wanted to own that brand experience and that customer experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, again, it's, uh, it seems like uh, Tesla has borrowed a few things from, from Apple. And this was uh, really one of those things. And uh, uh, even though it was uh, quite uh, counterintuitive in the, in the, uh, auto like uh, space and um, as you said it's also interesting to point out that um, even when it comes to to car dealers most of the money uh, as they sell the cars at, uh, at uh, very uh, low profit margins most of the money are made on service on the service business though when it comes to the service business uh, if you're a company like Tesla, you lose uh, control of the customer experience because if the service is provided by the car dealers the car dealers is not uh, interested in, in selling just your brand. It's interested in actually, you know, providing service for, for many other brands or actually building its own brand. So this might seem trivial, but even when you look at the company like Apple, a lot of revenues, like we're talking about uh, billions and billions come from the service and the services are provided within the Apple stores. So this is a very important point to, to emphasize because if you don't have a place where customers can come in and, um, and uh, you know, uh, talk directly with the company, you don't have control over the service business, which is not only uh, very important, uh, you can control the customer experience, but uh, it's also the business that has higher margins. So I think it's, uh, it's a very important point to emphasize. So the, the retail store strategy is extremely expensive, but it works on both uh, sides of the funnel. On top of the funnel, it's a branding educational strategy and at the bottom of the funnel to create a new revenue stream at time margins, which is the service business, which you can build when you have a successful product. So, you know, again, this uh, choice has been made uh, 15 years ago for Tesla. It was not a cheap strategy, it was quite expensive, but they built the distribution that over time 
is going to enable them to build a service business that might get even bigger than uh, the, the whole uh, auto business sooner, we'll see. But uh, I thought it was, uh, this was an interesting point to, to emphasize. And uh, um, as we move forward uh, to, to the story, um, it, it's interesting to notice that anyhow, it, was, it wasn't like uh, other uh, companies hadn't understood that Tesla was a potential threat. Um, also because the other companies had tried and attempted to build their own electric vehicle. Um, at the point that uh, actually Tesla was thinking to sell uh, at, uh, to, to Google I, I, in, two, in 2013, as you recall in the, in the book. But uh, how could they actually, uh, the Tesla competitors, uh, miss, um, you know, the... the the whole electric vehicle uh, market uh, development. Um, do, do you think there is any particular reason for that? Um, or was just that Tesla was supposed to be uh, at that company and in some way it survived? I mean, do you think there are some reasons that we can, um, you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the, the success of the Model S, which really made the company more appealing to investors, and that's really where the Model S comes out in 2012, but really hits its stride in 2013. The Tesla is profitable for the first quarter uh, at that point. And really, that's when you start to see the stock start to rebound, uh, really accelerate, and it allows the company to, to start um, raising the kinds of funds that it really needs to go uh, to keep going. Um, this is creating a lot of conversation, a lot of interest among traditional automakers. And as they look at the company, there's a few things going on. Um, you know, there's a kind of a, a renewed idea that, okay, perhaps lithium ion cells that which we've talked about the electric vehicle, this could be uh, potentially something that customers are going to want. Um, you started to see companies like GM, um, you know, move faster. They have the, the Chevy Volt, which been a hybrid uh, be out there. Um, you start see them, uh, you know, kind of thinking about having more all electric vehicles, that sort of thing. Um, so that's going on. But the other thing is, is this companies study Tesla, they really were skeptical that uh, it was going to be able to survive as a company. And you, we just talked about that direct model uh, uh, approach. And as car, car companies looked at that, they really they were, they were looking at the cost of building it out and more importantly, they're looking at the service end of that, that there was going to create all of this essentially kind of liability down the road for Tesla, uh, delivering the cars themselves and then fixing them. And that was, they predicted that was going to be very messy and hard to do. And so that was going to be an area that Tesla would struggle with. Uh, they looked at the production capabilities and were really questioning if they could really get the scale that they were going to need um, to bring down the cost to go mainstream and these sorts of things. And so that's kind of out there. Um, and, you know, so they, you know, really it's, they, the companies, traditional car companies were struggling with this issue of they're making money from gas powered cars. That's where their bread and butter is. This electric car thing. Uh, yeah. Let's make a, kind of a side bet that maybe this is the future and the future is way off, right? Um, and that's, it's kind of where you see kind of the industry at that point. Um, the Model S success at Tesla 
is reinforcing Elon's vision and it's it's helping him raise the money he needs as he's thinking about that next step right we've talked about the, that three-point plan which was create a sports car to build excitement for the sedan the model s has come out and now the kind of ideas move on to the the next leg which would be the mainstream automobile which would be priced it away was supposed to be priced in a way that it could be affordable to the masses and really get the scale and, and really change the world um, by putting uh, the electrified automobile into the mainstream. And so what happens there is Elon starts making huge bets in that he's looking at the supply chain world and saying there's not enough battery cells out there. Uh, the company really needs to start, you know, if they're going to have millions of car sales, they're going to need uh, way more capacity. So they need to figure out a way to get uh, battery cell production to basically, uh, I mean, grow dramatically. And they, you know, they need to push forward the Model 3, which is going to be their mainstream car. Um, and, and these are the, the kind of the, the key things right there. They're putting the acceleration on trying to get the cost down to make it more mainstream, to take this kind of the momentum that they have with the Model S um, into the next level, and they're moving faster than the traditional automakers are moving, and that and that's one of the big things. And and you know, GM sees and hears Tesla, and so they too have what they think is going to be uh, something that compete against the Model Three. That's the Chevy Bolt. Um, but as the two companies, you can kind of compare how they approach it. Uh, GM is hearing Tesla say that they're going to have a thirty-five thousand dollar car. Well, GM knows how to make a $35,000 car. They were concerned about price and, and um, you know, essentially the Bolt comes out and it's, um, you know, technologically pretty interesting. It's an interesting car. It's a small car, uh, but it's not sexy. It's not designed in any way that uh, it's going to be confused um, for a sports car. Um, you know, it maybe doesn't necessarily have the, the coolest interior. There's nothing luxury about it. It's, it, you know, it, 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 whereas the Model 3 is um, essentially the Model S, but they figured out a way to take some of the cost out of it. Um, and it's, but the other thing is, it's not a $35,000 car. It, today it sells for uh, way more than that. Um, it wasn't $35,000 at the time it was launched. And, and that's one of the challenges and the problems you could kind of say about Tesla is that. Uh, they have a hard time getting the vehicle in at the price point that they say it's going to be. And this is one of the key things about the ability of Elon Musk as the CEO. And the, the ability is the guy who can go out and raise the capital that the company needs to keep going. And so he's looking at these, when he's looking at the Model S, for example, he's wanting it to be the best car that happens to be electric. And so as they're developing it, um, he he's developing something that he would like to drive. And um, the car was supposed to be something like $50,000, but it comes out to be actually more like $100,000. And, you know, if you're at General Motors and you're given the assignment of coming out with a $50,000 car and it comes out at a $100,000 car, you're not really having a career at General Motors. That's not something you can do uh, in, in, the, in the traditional auto world or, or really any company. But Elon Musk is Elon Musk. He's raising the money to keep the company going. It's his call. He's the boss. And he's betting that having that Model S be the, the, the best car that it can be is actually going to be more valuable than kind of the margin in the near term. 
and that kind of carries over to the Model 3. Um, he gets into in place a really good team that figures out how to do it more affordably, but still, it was never really a $35,000 car, right? So, you know, GM is coming out with its $35,000 car, and it's competing against a car that's really selling more like at fifty or $60,000, and they're just out of the league, right? But what, what happens is that creates huge excitement among the buyer for the Model 3. And so the Model 3 is revealed in 2016, and people haven't even been able to test drive it. And they don't even really know when it's going to come out, but they're literally lining up around the block with Tesla stores to put money down to get to be able to be one of the first people to buy that car. And online uh, deposits are, are going through the roof. I mean, and that shows that moment in time is, is very important because it shows that there's this pent up interest in electric cars more so than the, uh, the auto industry thought was there. And that's really when it's a wake-up call um, to the industry that something is going on. Um, but by that point, it's almost kind of too late. It takes many, many years to develop a car. And so the industry is trying to race to figure out how to do its electric car at that point, whereas Tesla is pretty close to putting one on the road. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, um, of course, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not just that uh, the people were interested in uh, electric vehicles, it was also the ability of Tesla to, to create uh, excitement, uh, which could be compared to the kind of excitement that uh, you know, Steve Jobs created uh, with the releasing new, uh, very cool products uh, um, back in the days. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, just to emphasize a little bit uh, and to um, go back and then we move forward, uh, Tesla successfully launched uh, its, uh, its uh, let's say, business plan by, uh, you know, um, proving the technology through the, the, roast, the roadsters. And then uh, there was uh, the point where the Model S uh, became the, the car where Tesla could show that uh, it could be uh, something uh, more uh, scalable than uh, just a sports car. So it moves right. from very small niche of the market to have where uh, this is more for, for people they know crossing the chasm. I mean, this is for, for uh, really the, the, the innovators. I mean, those people that are interested are really interested in, in the technology. And as it moves to, to the Model S, of course, uh, it moves uh, more toward the, the, the early adopters. So those people that, yes, are interested in the te technology, but they also want something that works extremely well. And I guess with the Model 3, we move toward the, uh, the, you know, the, the uh, larger number of the, this early majority where uh, people start to be interested more uh, to, to uh, how uh, cool is the product. So it's not just about the, the technology. And uh, as you pointed out, um, it, it was uh, Tesla never managed to really lower down the cost of the car at the point uh, that Musk had promised over the years. But also, I don't think uh, that uh, this is probably the, the key because uh, uh, going forward, there is another element on which Tesla may actually borrow something from Apple, which is the fact that you don't have to have uh, you know, a cheap product to make it scale. What you need is actually find something or someone that is going to subsidize the product. And, you know, by looking at uh, the Tesla business model, I was uh, looking at, uh, at it in the, in the last few days. And it's interesting to see also how the, the, the leasing arm of the company actually generated over 1.6 billion in 2020, uh, 2021. 
which is about uh, like 3% of the revenues, but it's not really about the revenues. The fact that uh, the company has a leasing arm, it means that uh, it can enable more people to uh, purchase a Tesla uh, with, uh, by, by not paying it uh, uh, in the full amount, which a few people can afford right now. Just like the iPhone, uh, many people in the US can afford it because they can amortize the, the price of the iPhone through the plan that they pay to, through the mobile career. So uh, I guess the leasing part of Tesla is extremely important to understand that the scale that the company can reach over time, even though it's not gonna, it might not be able in the short term to lower the cost of, uh, of electric vehicles, because let's remember, I mean, the batteries are very expensive. It, it might be able to do that, you know, in, in uh, let's say five, 10 years, not necessarily, you know, in the, in the short term. So I think this is a very important point to, to, to highlight. Uh, but as we move forward from the Model 3 uh, going, uh, you know, going forward, uh, the, the problem is not anymore about prototyping, right? I mean, now it's a prob problem of production. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's where Elon Musk yeah. is going to focus, right? Yeah. Production and execution delivery. That's the challenge for the Model 3 is really going from doing tens of thousands of cars to hundreds of thousands to millions of cars and that level of complexity just just is very hard and you know we started this conversation talking about how it was nearly did the company in in 2018 and it really did getting that production going on time it was months late running low on cash um concerns that maybe the company wouldn't be able to pull it off incredible uh, tension at this point because uh, Tesla has and Elon has been able to figure out a way to generate kind of attention, right? So there was this all this hype, and it was looking like the company was going to fail in a kind of a massive way. Um, and so, really, 2018, the summer of 2018, was um, really one of those periods where it didn't look good for the company. And um, and one of the the problems that happened was with the success of revealing what the Model Three was going to be like in 2016. Mm -hmm. um, there was all this interest in the car and Elon wanted to pull ahead the production plans to kind of capitalize on some of that success. Uh, you, you know, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of people who have put money down that want it. Their production plans were much slower uh, and smaller, and he wanted to get out there before maybe a rival could take some of that interest. Right. Or um, but also the reality was there was with all that interest in the car. There was now huge interest in the investor community, um, you know, to invest, and so he was able to raise a bunch of money to kind of, kind of pay for that industrialization, right? So, um, but the but the challenge is that it takes to ramp up production is very complicated, and one of the things he thought that they could maybe make it easier was by relying more on automation in the assembly line, going with more robots, these sorts of things. Anybody who has experience in car manufacturing knows that um, robots have their place, but they're also a level of complexity that can be hard to just turn on, that you've got to do it right or else you're going to have problems down the road. Uh, GM had struggled with it uh, years earlier. Toyota actually doesn't try to rely on as many robots as some might think because they find that having um, people work there gives, is cheaper and allows greater flexibility. Uh, and so you had this kind of really quick push to try to automate a lot of the, the, the factory that they had. And what turned out was um, they basically had tied everything up in knots and they were trying to figure out how to fix it was really hard. Um, 
And so you get into early 2018 and they still haven't turned on production in any meaningful way um, to kind of get the levels they needed to, to get the sales that they needed to, to kind of keep the lights on. And Elon is sleeping on the factory floor and all of his key deputies are there day in and day out, just trying to knock down what's like whack-a-mole of problems. Um, ultimately, they were saved um, because uh, the team that was responsible for developing the Model 3 um, was more, they had moved beyond the startup phase. Uh, the, the, the Roadster was developed and the Model S had been developed. And, and Elon had hired uh, a, a savvy uh, executive from Apple who'd experienced um, overseeing uh, the Mac computer lineup. And he'd come in and in a lot of ways, he kind of, uh, I don't want to use the term professionalized, but corporate, corporatized uh, Tesla's development operations in a way that it needed uh, to be done as it was moving from kind of a startup to being a real corporation, a real car maker. And one of the things as they kind of looked at the challenges of the Model S and uh, the derivative of that vehicle called the Model X, which was a large SUV, was that it was, it was hard to build, physically make at the factory. And, um, you know, the, for an example with the Model X, if you will, was they had Elon really wanted these cool seats in the back that were on pedestals and that you would be able to kind of look under the seat and you could see out and, and they weren't going to be attached to the wall. Well, this created all this like complexity of like assembling the seats and like people on the assembly line were having to go in and like with a wrench and like, you know, twist their backs and get in there. And, and it was really complicated, right? And they were, workers were getting you know, repetitive injuries. Um, it was hard to build. And the, the, mo and the Model 3 team was, was kind of charged with this idea of like, we have to make a car that's really easy to make because this is, this is a problem for us. And so that was one of the big, that was an important part. And that comes into play, whereas, they, the, the assembly line is in knots because of the automation, but it's actually pretty easy to make the Model 3. And one of the engineers says, well, why don't we just kind of take it away from these robots and do more of it by hand? And that, and that was a huge insight. Uh, essentially, what they, they do is they start creating new assembly lines where it's less automated uh, and the people can just put the car together. And in fact, they set up a giant tent outside of the factory where they can put one of these assembly lines. And then it's just a matter of putting a lot of people on it and just, here you go, just keep cranking it out. And this is, this is the solution. This saves the company. Uh, the summer, they start cranking out the, the, the number of cars they need uh, to start generating the revenue. And this is, and this, they avoid basically collapse. But they're not out of the woods yet. Now they've got, they got, they've got thousands of cars coming out of, out of the factory. They've got to deliver those cars to people. And this is, you know, we, as we talked about, this idea of controlling their own sales and service operation really becomes a challenge because they've basically run out of money and haven't been able to scale the sales and service operation. It's just like what the car, traditional car companies had figured was going to happen years ago, years earlier when they looked at Tesla and their ambitions and said, oh, this is going to be one of the bottlenecks. And it was. Um, and the challenge was in the third quarter uh, of 2018 was they had all of these cars that they had now built. They had costed the company money. The company's nearly out of cash. They have to deliver. 
you know, thousands of these cars by the end of the quarter, or they're, they're kind of, it's game over at that point. And so there's this massive rush to deliver Model 3s around the U.S. to make those, to make those sales, because it doesn't count as a sale until it's in somebody's hand. Hmm. And you see this kind of crazy effort to do that, inclu- included, you know, all sorts of untraditional kinds of ways of delivery from, uh, you know, hiring uh, people off the street, essentially, to drive these cars to people's houses and give it to them and then take an Uber or a Lyft back to the Tesla operation and go get another car, like literally hand delivering them at their homes to, um, you know, at one point Elon was putting out requests to help from, from customers to kind of come to the centers and help, you know, with the, the deliveries that were taking place at these delivery sales and service facilities where people were coming to get their car and, and they were being scheduled in advance and, and slotted into, you know, 30, to, 30 minutes to an hour kind of period where they would come and get their car and, you know, they drive off, hopefully happy customers. And so just a mad dash to do that. And they, they pulled it off, which uh, was remarkable. And the, the other remarkable thing was these were not $35,000 cars. These were the early adopters that the sales team um, had sold much more expensive, $60,000, $65,000 cars. And so these were high margin vehicles that helped the company turn a profit that quarter. Um, really key, a really kind of a key moment. And that allowed the company to kind of get into, you know, figuring out how to make these cars cheaper, but also figuring out how to deliver them. And, you know, for Tesla, launching the Model 3 was a multi-year challenge as they learned how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing is important to to highlight is that one thing is prototyping, another thing is actually mass production. And uh, Elon right. Musk also over Twitter has highlighted a few times that there was a, a production hell. So it was something that uh, uh, probably uh, created most pain for him over over the years. And um, uh, the turning point, I guess, would be really the the opening of uh, the, the the factory in uh, in uh, in Shanghai, right? I mean, th- this would be like a really uh, turning moment uh, for for Tesla after the near-death experience of 2018, uh, the the opening of uh, Tesla uh, in in China uh, in 2021 would be really a turning moment that uh, uh, made the whole dream uh, possible, right? I mean, yeah. uh, So the continuing to struggle into 2019 with the Model 3, uh, it's quite, it's becoming it's not the cheap car that everybody anticipated. It's a little bit of a struggle to sell it in the U.S. at the levels that they were hoping for. Um, but really what they need is scale, and China is going to give them scale. Uh, and so really the, the doubling down there on the bet is let's open a separate assembly plant. It will be in China. That's where the growth potential is for electric cars. That's the, where the, the luxury market is. They'll, uh, you know, this is the big bet, and they... And it just happens to be at the time where the Chinese government is willing to is very excited for the idea of getting a Tesla into the into the market because it's going to put pressure on uh, its homegrown electric car uh, uh, companies to kind of scale up and to get competitive. And that they, in the country wanted um, you know, electrification of its its vehicles. And so it kind of perfect in some ways, perfect timing. Um, a lot of investors in early 2019 thought you know, it wasn't going to be possible. It didn't look very good uh, for Tesla. You know, the idea had been that the Model 3 would come out 
2018, and the company was going to be then profitable going forward, and it was going to get all of the problems behind it. And here you are in 2019, and still struggle. Mm-hmm. And this is where you start to see some investors lose faith. Some of the biggest supporters are privately saying maybe this is kind of not going to happen. And um, the one thing, though, is that in China, that with the government's help, getting that factory going, getting it up, getting it built in record time um, really surprised a lot of people. So you know, Tesla is able to open this factory in about a year's time. So it's they announced early 2019 they're going to do it. And early 2020, Elon Musk is there at the opening of the factory, dancing on stage. And what that does is create renewed confidence that Tesla can maybe pull off all of Elon's wild um, ambitions. And you start to see the stock growing. Um, and it looks like this is going to be the moment for Tesla. And then COVID happens, right? All of a sudden, Tesla's factory in California is taken offline because of local ordinances to you know, part of the COVID quarantining effort. And without the, without the China factory, Tesla wouldn't be able to generate revenue. And so you know, the China factory is keeping the lights, you know, keeping, you know, keeping sales going and Tesla is pushing through COVID and Elon is very aggressive and reopening as soon as he can. And that period of time, the company is able to continue to be profitable and, you know, heading towards, um, you know, basically the the first full, you know, 12 months of of profitability and, and surviving COVID when other automakers really uh, suffered, um, the level of excitement in the investor community for Tesla soared. And mm-hmm. Tesla was able to do something to address the biggest problem it had for since the beginning, and that is cash. It went out and very cheaply raised a mountain of cash um, that gave it kind of the cushion to weather um, storms in the future. Um, and it, and that the ability to raise the cash then takes away one of the, um, the big you know, concerns or risks that investors have is that Tesla will run out of cash because of whatever. And so it's this kind of virtuous cycle, if you will, of the the stock rises, it has this money, it rises more, it's Mm -hmm. able to attract the talent, uh, it's attracting the attention, and it really becomes a moment for for the company where people, investors are not only betting that the future of the car is electric, but they're also betting that Tesla and Elon Musk are going to dominate that future, um, and that's and that's kind of what makes what 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 makes them the world's most valuable automaker is not necessarily the success they've had, though they've had some success in the near term here. But the bet that this that success is kind of signaling even more success in the future, right? And so the bet of the century really is was that the idea that they could create an electric car company that would would change the world and you know, they, they, in a lot of ways have, you know, people always want to say, well, what's the future of Tesla? We can't really say, but if there was no Tesla uh, tomorrow, or if they were to somehow go away, you know, it's undeniable that Tesla has had success in making um, the traditional automaker in the world uh, think about the role of electrification of the car Uh, from General Motors to Volkswagen to Toyota. These companies are now investing billions and billions of dollars in pursuing um, the electrification of their fleets. Governments around the world, um, seeing the success of Tesla, 
um, have been emboldened to impose uh, new and, and tougher regulations that are pushing for the electrification of, of the automobile. So, um, you know, that, you know, it's, it's really, you know, it's a testament to Tesla and Elon Musk's vision for that electric car um, and showing that the world and that people um, could want an electric car if it performed and looked, um, you know, like an appealing way. Yeah, just a quick uh, takeaway from from the conversation, and then a, a quick take on uh, on your side. Um, you know, I, I was one of those people that believed in 2018 that Tesla uh, wouldn't um, make it because, of course, uh, we we weren't wrong because uh, as uh, as uh, Elon Musk has highlighted many times, Tesla was a few months away and actually at a certain point, a few days away from from bankruptcy. So it had really uh, a very short uh, um, uh, amount of money to actually survive in the short term. So we were not wrong. So it was very um, uh, at hindsight, it was very uh, impossible to. Um, I mean, it was impossible to predict the, the success of uh, Tesla. On the other side, in 2016, of course, uh, the Elon Musk drafted the, the part two of this uh, master plan, which is about, I would call it the, the electrification platform, uh, because it's uh, way more than just making cars. Tesla starts to become, even though, uh, as you can, uh, people can read in the book, it's uh, there is a little bit more controversy behind uh, this, because uh, Tesla would eventually bail out um, um, uh, the 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 other company that uh, that uh, the, the the solar city company, um, but anyhow, the, I think this was the strategy where Tesla started to build a, an electric uh, infrastructure and platform, and then it also started to to build the autopilot software company. Uh, so today, if we look at Tesla, it's worth more than a trillion, not just because it's uh, only speculation; it's also because the market is betting that uh, the market in which Tesla is in is way bigger than just cars. It may be something which is made of a uh, of a platform, electric platform infrastructure, and also uh, the, the the software part, which uh, can be uh, used both in uh, in civil transportation, but way more than that in cargo and many other uh, devices. And of course, uh, also the the, the uh, uh, robotic uh, robotization of the the manufacturing plants. Let's remember that this can be used also to uh, actually um, uh, offered as a service uh, in the future. So we don't know, but anyhow, I, I guess the bet now is that. Uh, the Tesla, the Tesla market is going to be way, way larger. And then there is another key uh, turn of event in 2022, just, I guess, a few days ago, when the, we had again the Elon dance, because uh, finally Tesla managed to open the Giga Berlin. And I think it's uh, another uh, key event, because it um, finally uh, Tesla managed to open the, 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 the plant in, uh, in the heart of uh, the manufacturing, uh, the auto manufacturing industry in Europe for the last century and more. Uh, so if uh, on, on your side, uh, Elon Musk, uh, you know, um, uh, said on Twitter that he's going to announce the, the master plan part three. Can you guess, I mean, uh, what uh, is going to be the main focus? Uh, and actually, probably this might be a good uh, uh, continuation of, uh, of your book, I guess. Yeah, the key thing there, as we look at the kind of the master plan too, and we think about what we look at the last few years as he's held kind of events around battery technology and AI technology and autonomous car technology is um, he's selling this vision of what the company could become in the future, right? And, you know, autopilot is not fully self-driving car mm -hmm. technology at this point, it, you know, the company might have it someday, but um 
you know, it's a hard, it's a really hard thing to do. And a lot of people are trying to do it. And, and, you know, the, the efforts on the solar have not gone as I think a lot of people hoped. Um, the, the robot, I think, uh, in large part was uh, kind of done to, you know, excite potential hires because the competition for AI tech, uh, uh, people is very competitive. And so, um, it all it kind of at the you know, the common denominator here is it's Elon selling kind of his vision for the future that Tesla is more than just a car company that it is a place that is doing hard technology the future that sort of thing and that um, really is kind of the key to keeping some of that excitement going and that's the challenge that the company is going to have in the future is that you know a lot of the valuation a lot of the excitement. Um, it's going to be very hard to kind of keep that growth going. And at the end of the day, Tesla is a growth uh, stock story and it's hard to keep the kind of the year over year growth that they've had, um, you know, into the future. Right. So that'll be part of the challenge is how does Tesla go from, how does the kind of Tesla manage that investor kind of uh, demands to see 50% annual growth of car sales versus all these other things, right? So you're, you know, you're, you're seeing Elon talk about stuff more than just building cars. Um, and the other challenge and the big challenge for Tesla um, continues to be one of execution. It has pulled off the, the China factory um, in record time, but it has struggled um, with some of the other uh, projects that Elon has, has done. And, and, um, and in the, when you look at the talent that he has, he's lost a lot of his senior leaders and, you know, he can't do it all himself. And you, you start to, if, you know, the question becomes, if Tesla is going to become a multi-generational company, it has to have multi-generational leadership. And how is he developing that kind of the next generation? It's yet to be uh, determined, yet to be seen. So that, you know, the challenges ahead are how do they keep the growth? How do they keep the excitement going? Um, because there's huge, huge excitement and that, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, it's hard to keep that kind of thing going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Tim, uh, for uh, for joining this conversation. It's uh, it was a huge pleasure, and uh, thanks for uh, uh, for uh, your insights. Great. Well, thank you. It was an honor. Absolutely, my honor. Thank you. Mm -hmm.